Welcome to the Crosswalk Church Podcast, Phoenix, Arizona. Special message this morning. Special message, personal message, and I'm going to warn you right now, parts of this are going to be really hard to digest and to listen to because they're personal and because they're painful, because they're about our Savior, and because they're about you and me. Before that, though, Joda, you've got a special graphic for us. Here we go. Yeah, I know what you're thinking. You didn't realize that I had been on the cover of Sports Illustrated. No, no, this is... uh, This is someone I'm going to guess that uh, some of you remember. Tony Mandrich. Remember Tony? Here's the story, short version of Tony Mandrich. This is the Sports Illustrated cover, April 24th, 1989. Tony was born in Oakville, Ontario, played football, played tackle, offensive tackle for Michigan State University. No cheers for Michigan State? Okay. Okay. My dad was a Wolverine. 1988, Tony was first-team All-American, UPI Lineman of the Year, Outland Award finalist, two-time Big Ten Lineman of the Year. Here's some interesting nuggets about Tony. He once punched an Ohio State captain in the chest during the coin toss and said, you're going to die today. He drove a Northwestern player into the end zone, pancaked him, and told him to stay there. And he did. 1989, draft combine. He weighed 304 pounds, ran the 40 in 6 point, I'm sorry, 4.65 seconds, did a standing long jump of 10 feet, 3 inches, 30-inch vertical leap, and bench press 225 pounds, a grand total of 39 times. Sports Illustrated did a feature article on him, touted him the best offensive lineman prospect ever. The cover that you see in front of you, called him the Incredible Bulk. After extensive media hype, appearances on radio talk shows, Mandrich was drafted number two overall in the 1989 draft. He was drafted drafted by Green Bay, the number one draft that year, Troy Aikman. Number two, Tony Mandrich. And then, get this, after him, Barry Sanders, Derek Thomas, Deion Sanders. The rest of the story, though, is not a pretty one. Incidentally, Mandarich is the only one of those five who is not in the NFL Hall of Fame. First of all, he got himself in trouble by holding out, signing his contract with Green Bay, a place he didn't want to live or play. He called it a village. He wanted more money. He wanted to make as much as the first round pick. The number one pick finally became the first lineman ever to sign a seven-figure contract. But his holdout meant that he didn't start actually playing and joining the team until the season began, and the rest was absolute and utter disappointment. Three years into his contract with Green Bay, he was cut. (laughs) 
Sports Illustrated cover. There it is. September 28th, 1992, labeled Mandrich, the incredible bust. Unbelievable hype, incredible expectations, leading to reasonable question. Is this all there is? Is this what the hype was actually about? You've got to be kidding. Tony's bust is counted as one of the greatest in NFL history. That's the case, then, the text that we're going to talk about in Scripture this morning may very well seem to be one of the greatest busts in all of human history. Because on a spring Friday morning in Jerusalem, about 2,000 Jesus, King of the Jews, was on trial. And all of human history hung in the balance. Dating back to the first gospel promise, I think some of you are familiar with this one. God created the world, created Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve fell into sin. And then immediately after what we call the fall, After that fall into sin, when Adam and Eve disobeyed God, God immediately turned around and made this promise. This is from Genesis 3.15. God said, I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. That was the first gospel promise that said that Jesus, the Messiah, would one day come to crush Satan and to make mankind once again right with God. And then that gospel promise is followed by dozens and dozens and dozens of promises. Promises to Abraham, promises to Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Joshua, Samuel, David. A Messiah. The anointed one. The Christ was going to come. And then finally, after thousands of years of waiting, it happened. Probably one of the stories in the Bible that everybody's familiar with. We get to give that event a name. We call it Christmas, right? Angels appeared to shepherds. Jesus is born. Think about the way that we celebrate that event, the coming of Christ. God made man. We have special services. We sing Christmas carols. Months before that date, all of the toys and the decorations are in the stores, and we decorate our trees, and we decorate our homes, and we toast each other with eggnog, and we turn on 99.9 and listen to Christmas music 24-7. Think 
of the way we celebrate Christmas. And that's just Christ's coming. Think about the kind of celebration that's in order when he actually does what he came to do. Right? Wow. Certainly, those kind of expectations must have been on the mind for people who witnessed and watched Jesus' ministry, especially these last days and weeks. It was just a few days ago that Jesus, worker of miracles, worked his climactic miracle when he said, Lazarus, come out. And his friend Lazarus, who had been dead and in a grave for three days, walked out alive. And then, that same Jesus entering Jerusalem, being hailed and lauded as a king. Palm branches, coats strewn before him. Children in crowds singing Hosanna in the highest heaven. What could be next? This is going to be really good. And what happened next is what we're going to talk about in our text this morning. This is the culmination of all of the decisive moments in history in the life of Jesus. This is the culmination. And I want to warn you, these words are difficult to read. And they're even more difficult to talk about. Have your notes handy because we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about the text on the first side of your notes from Matthew chapter 27. Before I do that, though, I want to set the stage for you. There's a neat little book called The Case for Easter. It's written by Lee Strobel. It's a short read, but uh, a profound read. And early in his book... Strobel interviews a research scientist. His name is Dr. Alexander Metherell, MD, PhD. Because he wants to find out some historical and scientific realities about what must have happened to Jesus. And just prior to the text that we're going to jump into, one of the things that we know about from Scripture is that Jesus was given over to be scourged or flogged, whipped, we might call it. Listen to this description by Dr. Metherell. Roman floggings were known to be terribly brutal. They usually consisted of 39 lashes, but frequently there were more than that, depending on the mood of the soldiers supplying the blows. The soldier would use a whip of braided leather thongs with metal balls woven into them, or some variation thereof. When the whip would strike the flesh, the balls would cause deep bruises or contusions, which would break open with further blows. The whip had pieces of sharp bone as well, 
which would cut the flesh severely. The back would be so shredded that part of the spine was sometimes exposed by the deep, deep cuts. Whipping would have gone all the way from the shoulder down the back, the buttocks, the back of the legs. It was just terrible. One of the consequences of this beating was that the victim would have likely fallen into what's called hypophalemic shock. Here's what that means. First, the heart races trying to pump blood that isn't there from massive blood loss. Second, blood pressure drops, causing fainting or collapse. Third, kidney snap, producing urine. And fourth, the person becomes very thirsty as the body craves fluids to replace lost blood volume. And we're just getting started. This is what our text says. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. Now, praetorium, in our language, would mean, think of an enormous area with Roman barracks, the places where they slept, lived, while they were stationed in Jerusalem. And we know that this particular barracks could accommodate up to 600 soldiers. We're told here, it says, the whole company of soldiers. Whatever the number was, it was a lot of people. Forget the images that you've seen with a couple of soldiers surrounding Jesus. It says they stripped him. Make no mistake, that means what it says. They stripped him. Put a scarlet robe on him. Twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand, probably some sort of a reed that would be used to make a, a broom. They knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews, they said. They spit on him. This whole army of soldiers took the staff, struck him on the head again and again. After they mocked him, they took off the robe, put his own clothes on him, and they led him away to crucify him. Again, to fully appreciate what took place here, what Jesus went through and endured, we'll turn back to the good doctor. See, the Romans did not invent crucifixion, but they did perfect it. After thousands of trials, Roman citizens could not even be crucified. In fact, a good Roman citizen wouldn't even utter the words or talk about it in their home. Here are a couple of highlights about crucifixion. Some of these things, I think, run counter to maybe what we've learned, we've brought up with. Roman soldiers used spikes five to seven inches long, tapered to a sharp point. They were driven typically through the wrists, which in biblical language, when it says hand, would have included the wrist area. The nail would have gone through a place where the median nerve runs. This is the largest nerve going out to the hand, and it would be crushed by the nail that was being pounded in. 
He adds, you know the kind of pain you feel when you bang your elbow or hit your funny bone? That's a different nerve called the ulna nerve. It's an extremely painful incident. Most of us are familiar with that. Well, imagine taking a pair of pliers and squeezing and crushing that nerve. He adds, the pain was absolutely unbearable. In fact, it was literally beyond words to describe. They had to invent a new word, excruciating. Literally, excruciating means out of the cross. Think of that. They needed to create a new word because there was nothing in the language that could describe the anguish caused during crucifixion. It's a little bit more. Once a person was hanging in the vertical position, crucifixion essentially was an agonizing, slow death by asphyxiation. The reason is that the stress on the muscles and diaphragm put the chest in an inhale position. Basically, in order to exhale, the individual must push up on the feet with a nail in them. After managing to exhale, the person would then be able to relax down, take another breath. He'd have to push himself up to exhale, again scraping bloodied back against the wood of the cross. This would go on and on until complete exhaustion took over and the person wouldn't be able to push up and breathe anymore. Continue at verse 32. They were going out. They met a man from Cyrene named Simon and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall. The wine mixed with gall, historically we know to probably have been mixed with some sort of a mild narcotic to numb one's senses. Remember we said before how thirsty Jesus must have been? Think about what happens when you have a headache or any kind of ache. What do we want right away? Drugs? Ibuprofen? Jesus said, no. After tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. Sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right, one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads, saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God, which Jesus could have done. In the same way, the chief priests and teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heap insults on him. This is it. This 
is the decisive moment, the climactic culmination. Remember the Christmas celebration? This is it. This is what Jesus came for. Leads us to our first note. Because make no mistake, when Jesus hung on the cross, all of human history was brought together at this point in time. This was it. In the Old Testament, going to church was a little bit more like going to the butcher shop. Very foreign to us today. The sights, the sounds, the smells of what we would call church and worship. The Jewish tradition in the Old Testament. Sacrifice after bloody sacrifice. Goats, rams, lambs. All had a specific purpose. They reminded God's people that sin requires blood. But that God would accept a substitute. One of the most important teachings in Scripture. Sometimes we call that substitutionary atonement. Sin requires blood, but God would accept a substitute. And here, the perfect substitute was the final fulfillment for all of those sacrifices. Prophet Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus, said this, and this is in your notes from Isaiah. Beautiful example of the kind of substitution that we're talking about in Jesus. This is Isaiah prophesying 700 years into the future about what Jesus would do. He says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He, Jesus, was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each and every, each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It boggles the mind to think that what we just read about, which turns my stomach, it makes me feel ill. And I know it does for you too. Jesus did that willingly as my substitute, as your substitute. That's our next note. Jesus willingly went to the cross as our substitute. Some interesting thoughts from Philip Yancey. His book, Where is God When It Hurts? What's the point of all of this? The point of this, what looks like a bust. 
Yancey says this, the record of Jesus' life on earth should forever answer the question, how does God feel about our pain? In reply, God did not give us words or theories on the problem of pain. He gave us himself. The scene with the beatings and sharp spikes and slow torment of suffocation has been recounted so often that we who shrink from the news stories of death of a racehorse or a dog or a baby seal flinch not at all at its retelling. The Apostle Paul calls the cross a stumbling block to belief, and history would prove him out. God was not up there watching the tragic events conspire down there. God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. In Luther's phrase, the cross showed God struggling with God. Your sins, my sins, our hopeless condition, all nailed Jesus to the cross. But this is where we get to talk about the good news. Because the good news outweighs the bad. Outweighs all of the anguish, all of the pain, all of the agony. The good news, Romans chapter 8, verse 1, I've got it in your notes. What's the point of all of this? Here's the point. Therefore... There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jot that note in first, and then we'll talk a little bit about that. Because Jesus died, that's number three, we are no longer condemned. I said right up front that this was personal. Maybe even more personal than we fully appreciate. Because of Jesus' sacrifice, because Jesus was our substitute and yours, here's what that means you are not your sins, you are not your past, you are not your failures. Who are you? When you look in the mirror, simply put, you are the one that Jesus loves. You. You're the one. And everything that we just talked about, Jesus did for you. Ever feel distant from God? Do you ever feel like God is punishing you? Do you ever feel like God has forgotten about you? Jesus knows and understands all of those feelings. He's been there. He's done that for you. Did you ever feel like you've been placed on the bottom shelf and that God seems to care more about people on the top shelf? 
take a look at Romans chapter 8, verse 1. It couldn't be more clear. You are no longer condemned. Think of it this way. Jesus is your champion. And everything that we talked and read about this morning is what we deserve. And Jesus shoved us out of the way. Said, I'll take care of everything. And so here's what that means now. When you get spit on, either figuratively or actually, Jesus understands. When you're in pain, when your bones are broken or maybe cancer or chemotherapy is eating your body alive, Jesus understands. When you feel alone, when you feel deserted, when everyone has left you, Jesus understands. When you don't know where to turn because it feels as though you've got nowhere to turn, Jesus understands. But he does more than understand. He makes it possible for whatever pain or suffering or disappointment you face now, he makes it possible for that to now be replaced after this little blip in time called your life and mine, he makes it possible for that to be replaced with joy beyond our wildest imagination as he takes you somewhere to a place he's prepared where he's going to wipe every tear from your eye. This is such a big deal. Pastor Jeff talked about it before. This is such a big deal. This is bigger than winning the Super Bowl. This is bigger than winning the lottery. This is so big that we can't just leave it about us and keep it to ourselves. We've got to get the word out. Take a look around, a very conscious look around when you walk outside, when you go through your day and you go through your week. Do you see people with worries? Do you see people with sin and guilt and shame? Do you see people who are in pain or lonely, outcasts? People who are sick, people who are hungry, people who are discouraged, people who are ready to give up on life. That's what this is about because Jesus is their substitute too. Imagine, just imagine that you have incurable cancer and then are given a cure. And the only condition of the cure is that you turn around and tell other people that the same cure is available for them too. That's what we get to do. 
we get to take this amazing blessing of knowing the horrific sacrifice made on our behalf so that we are now set free in Jesus. And we're coming to a weekend where that's broadly celebrated around the world. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 puts it this way. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. There you have it. What Jesus has done for you and the privilege and the honor to now be an ambassador for that same Jesus Christ. Note number four. Now Jesus uses us to reach out to those who are still lost. Next steps in the crosswalk. Sometime when you go home, to kind of prime the pump for the week ahead, Take some time, reflect on all of this. Take these notes with you. And I want to ask you to open one of the most powerful chapters in all of Scripture. Romans chapter 8. And as you get ready for the week to come, to consider the blessings and promises that God holds out to you, because of the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross, because of this culmination of human history. And after you've done that, now, as a restored and reconciled child of God, use this week to reach out. Pastor Jeff just poured his heart out to you, and I'm going to do the same. We've set some goals here for Crosswalk because goal setting, I think, helps move us forward. Imagine bringing together a thousand people to thank and praise and worship God for what he has done as our substitute. And by the way, it's okay if there are more than a thousand. We'll work with it. Pick up those cards outside. And some people will say no. And some people will say, not now. Who knows, maybe you'll be planting the seeds for months or years to come. Let's make this weekend something that we celebrate not only amongst ourselves, but with a whole new crowd of people who desperately need to hear this message. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are awestruck when we consider the unbelievable, the horrific sacrifice 
that you endured on our behalf as our substitute. We thank you so much for making it possible for us now to be right with you, right with God. Fill our hearts with faith to cling to your promises, to trust that this is really true. Also help us to cling to the promises that in sin forgiven, you give us the power to get through even the most difficult of troubles and trials and situations as we prepare for that one day when we'll spend eternity with joy with you in paradise. Bless our efforts to bring people to worship this weekend on a Good Friday, on Easter Sunday. Bless us now as we go our separate ways. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Crosswalk Church Podcast. For more information, visit us at crosswalkphoenix.com.